welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. It's me again. I released a new episode this week with Anna Burtmark, but I'm back with a reissue of an episode I first released in February of this year, although honestly it feels a lot longer ago, with Karina Antrobus. I'm reissuing this in the context of the dialogues and the events that have been happening around the world, although predominantly in the US and the UK, with regards to Black Lives Matter. I can't claim to be able to school you on this movement, nor should I need to explain why change is needed. I'm still learning and using this moment to catalyse my own education on issues around race, particularly the weaknesses I've identified in terms of my knowledge on intersectionality and abolition. There are lots of resources that are being circulated at the moment and I will link to those in the show notes. What I will say is we need to do much better. I say we as a member of the UK film industry and I say we as a member of society to eradicate racism and to create spaces, physical, political, cultural, creative, institutional that are inclusive and representative and frankly not sites of violence that are not occupied and commanded by whiteness. And I include myself in that as someone that has carved out a small space on the internet with this podcast. I need to do better to invite, although I don't particularly like that word because of the the kind of the power structures inherent in it, but to 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 talk to and learn from voices that are different from my own. On that note, I'm going to shut up very shortly and let the interview do the talking. But I want to frame it with a quote from Angela Davis, wherein she talks about optimism being an absolute necessity. And she says, this is an era where we have to encourage that sense of community. It is in collectivities that we find reservoirs of hope and optimism. I say this because Karina's work is very focused around collective and communal spaces, both in her founding of the Bechdel Test Fest and her current work with the Hackney Council as their arts and culture communications officer. Karina has been working recently on the Windrush Generations Festival, which is launching online today and will celebrate the contributions of Hackney's Windrush generation with events, educational resources and activities, or as Karina says herself, talking up all the cool things happening in Hackney. And I urge you to check it out. Again, I've linked in the show notes. We talk about her work on that and also the need for positive representations of black life in art and cinema, but also a lot more besides that. And I love the part where she connects the dots between many of her jobs being about visibility and connectivity, particularly as it relates to marginalised communities and stories. So here is that interview. This is episode 45 of Best Girl Grip. time ago now um I had no intention of going to university whatsoever I wasn't from that kind of background that really had that in their aspirations or expectations I did A levels and I completely thought I'd failed for some reason and then I passed with flying colours and everyone's like oh what university are you going to go to like I'm not going to go to university I just never thought about it and it was expensive and we didn't have the money so once I passed I thought well maybe I will go but I needed to save up in order to pay for it so took a year out and I took the opportunity to go back to where I did work experience at school which was at an audience research company um, and I was recruiting audiences for tv shows such as Big Brother, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, CDUK which was the fun one so I kind of got my way through just kind of doing a lot of live tv, 
being on the ground in studios, really vibing off the atmosphere mm -hmm. of filming and stuff and that was kind of fun you know I just loved the, the whole walking around with the clipboard and feeling important and going everybody clap now come on blazing squad on it was preposterous <laughs> and then yeah and then so I did go to university I went to Luton University because I felt like it was far enough away from London to feel like I was away from mm. London but not too far so that I would basically be the only brown person there which mm. isn't something that I'd wanted to do I wanted mm. to be around my fellow Londoners and the diverse thing and, but also Luton was the was really good at that year that I went because they updated all their new kit so all the stuff that we were going to be learning to use right. production wise would be um, industry standard so I did media production with media performance so a bit of um, documentary making TV presenting uh, and it was a very wide course so I, could, I, I got an opportunity to dip my toe into lots of different areas from journalism um, filmmaking f women in film and stuff but it's funny because all the film courses I was so bad at because I just fall, fell asleep I mean university for me was also a reason to leave home it wasn't necessarily yeah, like yeah, right yeah. this is the be all and end all start of my, of my marvelous life. career in television which I kind of was more into at that point and I remember now having these really long lectures about Scorsese and and uh, just thinking, yeah, this is fine. And then it was funny because also back then you had people going, oh, you're doing media? You're just going to sit around and watch movies all day? Yeah. That's not real work. But I think, I think that's a really ridiculous thing to say when you look at how many media messages you're with, constantly surrounded with. And to be able to decode them and use them to your own advantage into creating narratives that are better for people I think that's a really powerful tool so yeah I loved uni I met my family there so it was so much fun no regrets and then in fact I finished by doing a documentary with my best friend um we, we went to California to film a documentary on Native American gambling and how the laws are used mm. on reservations to their advantage and yeah that was incredible does that still exist uh, it's somewhere under my friend's bed and we keep saying oh we should get it out and put it on a screening but um, yeah it's not yet <laughs> so was that your first foray into filmmaking and was that where you thought you might take the degree yeah I mean me and my best friend we would we would just we just had so much fun doing it and we loved being creative with each other and we had this whole big idea of being like yeah we're going to be documentary filmmakers then I did the temping job at Virgin Media and uh, I was receptionist and it paid all right. I had literally no money coming out of university. I had three jobs to try and like pay back and stuff. I worked at Next on the weekend, a bar of the week on the evenings, and then Virgin Monday to Friday. Um, and ate porridge for three months. <laughs> so that was fun times. Um, but yeah, I just stayed at Virgin in the end because they liked me. And they liked, this is when I started getting into more writing. So because I got, I'm quite antsy. And I was getting bored and I was sitting there going, oh, I'm franking envelopes all day. There's definitely something more to life. And I got the opportunity to write the staff newsletter and I did it in a way that people enjoyed. And then they noticed I was getting bored and antsy and they were like, Karina, we like your writing. Would you like to come and write for the website? And kind of the rest is history. The last job that I had with Virgin after 12 years on and off was movies manager. So as well as writing for the website, reviews, whatnot, also movie marketing. So by that time, VOD marketing was much more of a industry. And it was my job to look after all the independent distributors. So I'd have quarterly meetings with uh, Lionsgate, E1, etc. And they would talk about the films that they had coming out. And I would 
organised what marketing they should have and shouldn't, yeah, that they should get. And presumably that was kind of before, I don't know, content's like had a massive like boom at the moment, like it seems mm. to be everywhere, and that was perhaps pre that? Did you like yeah. feel that change while you were working there? No, not at all, and it's interesting because I'm only now looking back now mm. at the inverted commas content creator roles, which is what is such a phrase now. And in my time at Virgin, we had such um, debate through over the years over what the, our terms should be, like our, our titles should be, and we thought we were like worthy journalists, we're sitting there, we're writing, we're doing the research. But when you're writing for a website, an ISP provider, essentially, it's more about getting hits and essentially it's a marketing tool to get people to buy a buy, buy internet. <laughs> so this is when it was Virgin Net and then Virgin, and then it taken over to Virgin Media. So stakes got higher once we were bought out. And whereas before we were editors, then we were content producers. And yeah, content producers back then is not what a content producer now is because mm. we didn't have I mean we didn't have social media as, as much like showing my age now but Instagram wasn't a thing Twitter I just kind of started but it wasn't really used in the marketing yeah. way in the way like brands were yeah. really using it yeah. yeah they were all a bit wary of it and even just have your say as a forum which was something that I set up at Virgin was really interesting because you were it was my job to te- create guidelines as to what can and can't be said and how we would monitor it Mm. and the the ethics of that was really interesting and again now if you look at the comments that are put on just randomly and and willy-nilly with it's it's a wild west now um but it's yeah it's it's been a really interesting decade looking at the boom of technology and social media and how important that is now in terms of who's creating content and how you can you can be anyone basically and Anyone can create content, but there are people doing it with much more style than others. Mm. Yeah, but I still I still have my content creating skills from a history of doing content production, content editing yeah. for Virgin. But it's a very different game, but yeah, I've, I've, it hasn't left me. And did you enjoy your time there? And did it kind of make you realise that marketing was something that A, you were good at and wanted to continue doing? Um, I did enjoy myself in there. It was, it was a lot of fun. And the team were great, um, but it's funny because I didn't realise it was marketing because I was so I was just so young and naive. <laughs> I was like, yeah, great! I got I got sent. I, it was great. I got sent to like restaurants to review. I did a bit of travel writing. Got sent to like St Kitts and and Mexico, and it was all very weird. And I always felt like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I hanging out with these with these other journalists on a press trip with, from the Daily Mail? And it was all like complete complete imposter syndrome and I was always the youngest person there and hadn't got a journalism degree or anything and I always thought like oh it, but it was so fun um and my best friend would always come along I'd, I'd always I'd, anything I'd got to go to they were like, I was like can I have a plus one and my friend would come along and it was yeah we had we had a lot of fun doing that yeah I didn't I didn't I mean back then it was writing I was like, I'm, I'm a worthy writer I'm going to write a great review about this thing that they asked me to talk about um but it's only when I don't know, I feel like purse strings got tighter towards the end of my career there and you'd noticed it in the offers that you were given and the amount of money PR companies were willing to spend on things with you and it, you know, it's some complete first world work problems but, you know, things like if you went on a travel trip you would suddenly be on EasyJet as opposed to premium economy on right, right. Virgin or something and it was then that I kind of clocked that this was all part of a PR strategy to sell something to a wider audience and that's when it started for 
solidifying into this marketing terms, which at first I was a little bit uncomfortable with, but it's only after sort of seeing and being and doing it for so long and realising that I am quite good at it and know how to construct things in a way that people can buy it. I mean, yes, essentially, marketing's got a dirty word because it's essentially making you buy something and nobody likes to be corralled into doing something mm. and, and, and that they don't want to do or spend money on something that they don't really need. But um, I do think that there's a real skill to it and a creativity to it, for sure. I've never really been like, right, I want to be a marketer, but it's always followed me around, like, okay, that's the job now, mm. I'm marketing. It's, it's never been straight-up marketing. It's always been communications which essentially kind of comes under that as well yeah and content creation which yeah again is the cousin of marketing so it's always been kind of looming behind me um, it's one of those weird jobs as well that sort of has like loads of different titles for mm. what is ostensibly the same role like mm-hmm. yeah communications or like yeah. content creator or producer yeah, yeah, yeah. it can be quite hard to like navigate like knowing yeah what it is yeah you're going for um did you actively pursue the job at picture house how did that come about no I didn't um so I got made redundant from virgin and I was pretty angry at that because it was a dream job at the time doing um I was movies man- movies editor and I was looking after all the independent film distributors so that was like to me that was the more interesting side as well so I didn't mm-hmm. have to worry about the studios, Disney and, and, and Warner Brothers and whatnot, I was dealing with the more interesting films. And then, like I said before, when it was Virgin Net into Virgin Media and then we got bought out, restructures happened. And, um, yeah, so I got made redundant then. And because of the stuff that I was doing for the, the movies job, it gave me an insight into how few films directed by women and films that were female-led were getting the marketing support that they, I think, that they deserved. Mm. So we'd go to these slate meetings and, and a kaleidoscope and E1 and Curzon would be like, OK, well, we've got all these movies. And then at the end of the slate, it'd almost be an apologetic, oh, by the way, we've also got these other films. Mm. We don't have any marketing spend, but, you know, if you could do something, that would be great, but we're not obliged yeah. and we don't actually have any money. But those were the movies that were resonating with me. I was like, hang on a minute, that one's really interesting. I remember, like, for instance, Ruby Sparks or something, which I quite enjoyed at the time. I've got my problems a bit now. But um, <laughs> it evolves. Um, and I was just getting this real insight into the way female stories were being treated and stories with people of colour being treated in terms of being taken seriously when it comes to marketing terms. Mm. And that made me sad. And made me angry because I was like, these are the stories that are my stories. These are the stories that I know that me and my friends could resonate with and learn from and enjoy and relish. But instead, we've got to push another gangster movie or another princess movie, Disney style. I also, with an assignment from Virgin, got sent to Flatpak Film Festival. Okay, great festival. Yeah. Now... I was a complete freeloader, like I said before. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I'll go do anything. Yeah. Can I bring my friend? The idea of going to Flatpak... Now, I, I didn't know what it was. I just liked the idea of being mm. brought up in a hotel. <laughs> I remember, I've never been to a hotel yeah. before. I was like, yeah. <laughs> On someone else's time, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Uh, so I went to Flatpak purely because it was a free trip. And it was just a game changer. And it was the first time... Like, I'd been going to film screenings and whatnot, mm. and that was all cool, but... This was the first time I was being taken around, shown different types of films, but not only just that, but different places to enjoy films. So I loved the fact that the whole city just opened itself mm. up for this festival in the way 
like the, the coffee shop suddenly became a cinema and I remember watching Joan of Arc by candlelight in the in the church and they set up an interview with me with Alice Lowe because Sightseers was out and it was in the electric cinema one mm-hmm. of the oldest cinemas I think the oldest cinema well it's between that and the Duke of York's but they're still battling it out but um it smelled dusty, but it was beautiful. And then I got a chance to watch this film, which was just hilarious. And I know I never would have seen that otherwise. And getting a chance to meet Alice Lowe was just, I mean, she's super cool. Yeah. And then I just came home thinking, wow, that's what a film festival is. That's bloody cool. Mm. I'm, 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 I wanna, where, where, when's the next one? When can I go to another one? And then that knowledge and enlightenment, if you like, and then being made redundant and just being angry and being feminist <laughs> and having a little bit of cash in my pocket because I was made redundant and just, yeah, time on my hands as well. Like I said, I couldn't sit still, very antsy. It's like, right, it's great. I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a film fe- I'm going to create a film festival. I have no idea where I got the guts from. I have no idea what I was doing. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Year six. <laughs> doing Bechtel Test Fest events. Let's definitely come back to that because I, obviously there's a big chunk that I want to devote to Bechdel Test Fest and how you even went about starting up. Um, but it's interesting in that I've never talked about redundancy on this podcast, actually. Mm. And I don't think it's talked about that much, mm. especially among young people. Because mm. quite a few of my friends I know, I've been made redundant. A few mm. of my friends have as well. And yet, yeah, it's not something we talk about. Like, the only people that I knew before I got made redundant were my parents when yeah. they were both like in their 40s and you know got a pretty big pay packet and could support themselves and I'm wondering yeah how you dealt with that experience was that quite difficult for you or yeah what were your feelings about it it was tough it was very tough because I'd really found a sense of identity within this role um like I said you know just the the idea of working for a big organization such as Virgin and getting a proper wage and was so far beyond what our family did and then there was such it was such a grueling process as well because they told you and then you had to apply for your job and then I was doing a really good job but somebody else got it in the end because just he'd been there longer so the politics of all that just came out and then then my dad died and that was really sad all at the same time so Mm -hmm. it was a really grueling time but I think it's uh, it's such a rite of passage for so many people, mm. I feel like, especially in this day and age, you will probably get redundant at some point if you're working for a company uh, because there is so much change and there's so much need to keep up with the developing technologies and the way that audiences are evolving. And I'm not, I'm not saying expect it, but no one I know who has been made redundant hasn't got back up on their feet and done an amazingly better job than what they originally were doing and if I think about I was at Virgin for nine years because the thing is I got made redundant and they hired me back as a freelancer and I was like I'm just going to do this for a bit because I need the cash it's never the end basically it's Mm. never the end and there's so so many cliches that your friends will tell you like you're so much better than that and you can do bigger and better things and this is an opportunity but it's a, it's cliche for a reason. It really is true. And a lot of the time we get very complacent, as people do, because we like comfort. We get complacent and we always go, oh, I should do something else, but I've got time right now. And then sometimes the push is exactly what you need. And if I think about things I'm doing now, today, I wouldn't have done it. Mm. I, I just wouldn't have done it. Like, I don't know where I would have need, had the, 
balls to do it. I hate saying that. Women have balls. Yeah, we have the green balls. Yeah, but um, no, no regrets. And uh, it's a, I think it's a really good opportunity to reset, sit down and be like, okay, now what? So, yeah. And was that fire in your belly what directly led to Bechdel Test Fest? And... Um, yeah, I would say so. And because I, really, I literally didn't know what to do. I worked for Blinkbox. Hated it. I, I actually got sad. It was really? terrible. <laughs> that was sad. That was even worse. Because at least at Virgin, like, they wanted to keep me where they couldn't. Yeah. I wasn't going, I wasn't in a great mental state as well because, you know, I literally, um, I was sleeping on a friend's floor. My dad had just passed away and I'd lost my job. <laughs> and I'd just got this job at, essentially it's Tesco's. It was mm. Tesco's VOD marketing. Yeah, and I okay. Was, I was like, didn't really know what I was doing. I remember getting called up. I'm like, I don't really know this is working. You could leave now if you want. Like, oh my God. That was devastating. Mm. But that was the final push. I think that was my insight to, to whatever fairy is looking out for me and saying, don't go back to a desk job right now. Like, just spread your wings a bit. Do something. Like, we're giving you this opportunity. You've got a bit mm. of cash. You're, not, you're sleeping on someone's floor and not paying hardly any rent. Like, this is your time right now. You haven't got kids you've got all this creative energy, you've got ideas, now is the time to do them. So I listened to that. I had to. I know that there's all this injustice in the world. <laughs> I know that there's these things that I am, I have I have experience in knowing about in terms of lack of diversity in film, lack of exposure for female-led and uh, people of colour in film. I want to create platforms because I've seen in my career so far that creating a platform in order to create exposure is a good thing. And what was your first event and how did you go about putting it on? My first event, so you've got, just just for the context for mm. anyone that doesn't know, uh, Bechtel Test Fest. So fest, festival mm. is a loose term. It's not a two week long festival. It's an ongoing screening collective. Uh, it's on, uh, yeah, ongoing screening series run by a collective. And we put on events as and when we can in and around uh, busy day jobs. There was once an ambition to do such a thing of like a whole week, but I really like the format that we've created now in that we can keep up with the conversations that are going on for women in film and, and diversity in film. Um, but the first event was Reclaim the Rom-Com. It was, so, it was, it was, a, it was a double bill at the Genesis Cinema of um, Philadelphia Story and Obvious Child. What a double bill! Yeah. Oh my God, I love that. I loved the idea of... I loved the idea. I, I kind of was upset with the idea that rom coms weren't taken seriously, and rom coms were just called chick flicks mm. inverted commas. I wanted to create a platform for these particular two particular films, which came under that banner, and potentially might not have got the audience that they deserved because people would just presume that, that just write them off. So I wanted to do one that was old, obviously Philadelphia Story, Catherine Hepburn, amazing, and uh, Obvious Child had just come out, and because that was being billed as the first abortion rom-com I just found that really fascinating as well and uh, so I put those back to back and I went to the Genesis cinema beautiful indie cinema in my end and I literally didn't know what I was doing I just was like um I've got this idea for this oh, I didn't say that I was very business like <laughs> went up you know sent her an email I was like I'm setting up a thing I'd like to come and put on an event what say you and Bobby who works there she was super open and we had coffee and I just basically talked as if I knew what I was doing 
not that I was lying. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, this will be our first event. And here's the idea. Because the Bechtel Test Fest was only going to be a one-year event. Okay. It was going to be the 30th anniversary for the Bechtel Test. So the Bechtel Test now is 36 years old because of Alison Bechtel's likes to watch out for the rule coming out that time. And just, I guess just a quick step back is the, the way I came up with the 30th anniversary idea, again, with the marketing hat on, I was like, hmm, people like anniversaries, right? Um, I'd gone over to um, Sweden to meet Ellen Tajil, who created A-Rate. And A-Rate is a classification system in Sweden that they use to put on films to say if it passes the Bechtel test mm-hmm. or not. And that's how I found out about the Bechtel test in okay. Totally, uh, because I had no idea what it was, and I was writing about femi- feminism and film back then. And I did my research, found that out. For and again, with the time I had, because I had no job, I was like, "Fuck it, I'll go to Sweden." Went to Sweden, and uh, Ellen showed me around her beautiful cinema, indie cinema. And then she was like, "Oh, did you know the Bechtel test is thirty years old next year?" And it was just like a light bulb yeah, moment. I was like, "Perfect, let's have a party. <laughs> let's have a one-year party." <clears throat> then I put on. I think because it was in it wasn't in a proper cinema it was in the screen upstairs it was in like the loungy bit and I think tickets were free and yeah tickets were free and then I had a my best friend who did PR who I met at uni as well she helped me out doing some amazing PR and she helped me do a press release and next thing I know that we're in timeout which, which is fantastic and tickets sold out like that and I was like wow mm. this is Tickets are gone, people are going to come. But, you know, tickets are free, so you don't actually know they're going to turn up. And then the morning of the event, I got a phone call from BBC uh, World Service. I was literally in bed, broke, going, hi, is, this is BBC. It's like, uh, what have I done? How did you my number? Yeah, we found you. And they said, oh, hi, Karina, we know that you're putting on an event today called Reclaim the Rom-Com. Um, it was around Valentine's Day as well, by the way. So nice, also good timing. Thing, right. <laughs> and uh, they were like, oh, we'd like to talk to you about the event that you're doing and why you're doing it and what the Bechtel test is and why you think it's important. Da, da, da. I was like, uh, okay. And they're like, oh, can we call you back in, say, 40 minutes? I was like, okay. Brushed my teeth, <laughs> put on some clothes. I don't think I even got dressed. I had a shower. <laughs> I was there in my towel, like, just talking to the World Service, going, yes, women in film, very good. <laughs> it was great. It was really great. And then, yeah, it was, it, was, it was super good. And then we had a panel as well, because the, what I wanted to do with the Bechtel Test Fest was always make sure that there was a conversation, because essentially that's the crux of the test. Two women having a conversation about something other than a man, which... I wanted to make sure it was always part of the events that we do. It's about talking to one another. And that means men too, mm-hmm. like people talking about film and why it matters. And, uh, and we had my friend uh, Nia Childs, still one of my good, good, good friends now. And she hosted, she hosted the Q&A with Craig um, Williams, who is a, gen- a film critic by night. Um, and another girl who was studying rom-coms for her PhD so I was like oh my god this is amazing we're gonna have a really interesting conversation here and uh yeah it was really fun just everyone hang out and then we put on the two films and it's yeah escalated from there yeah and this is I think that you know what with the great press that my friend had generated the the great set out and the genesis really enjoyed us being there and Nia doing a really great Q&A and I had a lot of really great people behind me helping me make that happen um 
fantastic volunteers. Beth Webb, who now still she, she basically runs the thing when I'm just like always oh, so busy. But um, yeah, she was she was one of the first people to turn up at the volunteer day that I did. Which again, I have no idea how I got the guts to do that. I just I think I just put out a, a tweet going going to do this thing does anyone want to turn up and help me mm. <laughs> and uh, as, as, as in the genesis just kind of hoping that people would turn up and then all of a sudden like 30 girls were sitting there and there's me with some tangerines and biscuits going hi and what were you doing <laughs> just gathering people and i'm like hi i have this idea would you want to help me make right, it happen right. and it was great because i felt such that was really affirming mm. that these people that had no idea who i was just liked the idea of it and um, wanted to help. I also love that you're bringing people along with you, like, from the get-go. It sounds like it wasn't just your baby. You were quite, like, happy to sort of, yeah, bring yeah, other people into it. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was... It, I always knew that it wasn't anything that I was going to be able to achieve on your own. And there's no ego involved in this. Like, I actually don't have any need for a platform myself and I'm quite happy just to stand in the back and see of a room full of people enjoying a film that we've picked and that's 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 what makes it for me but it absolutely runs with the love of people that have helped it and along the way from so when we first started it was kind of more so there's like nasi best friend sarah my best friend she helped out as well on some of the events and just sort of like lending hand um and simran and Sophie and Nia, we all became quite close and we were putting on events then as well. Yeah, and then like Beth's always, always been around and now what we've got now is it's, it's kind of evolved into people coming and going because, yeah, it's a lot of work. We can't all commit to it and mm. everybody that's helped out has been so passionate but they also know, they're, they're so passionate they want to give it their all and if they can't give it their all then they've got to carry on. And then and also it's been going for six years so people come and go and careers change and... and uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's plenty of times that I don't think I would have carried on if it wasn't for the support and enthusiasm from the other people that have helped it out and have wanted to make it happen. Mm. 100% I would have let it go otherwise, because I can't do this on my own. It's a lot of work, from the marketing to the PR to the standing up in, in you know, the emotional stress of standing up in front of people trying to pretend that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and selling tickets is still the hardest thing, and getting audiences in is... is really hard work it's all good having an idea and all the will in the world won't convince people to part with 10 pounds to come and or you know come out mm. on, a, on a night out so we really do create an incentive and you know we're, we're real cinema lovers we want people to come to the cinema experience it in the big screen yeah but i but going back to your question yeah there's been so many people that have helped out and i've loved seeing them go on to the next step as well and I've loved having other volunteers in the past saying, oh, can I put you on as my reference? And I've spoken to people about the work that they've done. And it's just, I've been overwhelmed, actually, with gratitude with some of the time and effort and passions that people have dedicated to this. And I still get emails now, which is just so lovely. People saying, can I help? Can I volunteer? And because we're not as frequent as we were before, I don't really have much volunteer work. And the collective that we've got now, we're, we're pretty tight, so... We've got all bases covered right now, but um, that's not to say that things won't change later down the line. How do you select what to programme? Like, what's your sort of, yeah, guiding principle? It has to be a positive representation of a female experience or a dynamic representation of a female experience because we can't just sit around watching girls have a great time all the time because that's just not life. 
to me, it does have to be something that resonates with the team and has something interesting and nuanced to say about the female experience and is keeping up with the culture of conversations that are being had right now. Also, stuff that hasn't had the opportunity to get the fanfare it deserved. So, for instance, the last few events of last year, um, Whip It, which was Steph Watts's um, pick, which was fantastic. And she really saw something in that film and she wanted to make sure that that got a fresh audience mm. and people that might not have got an opportunity before to see it in this new light. And it's, it's quite a funny movie, but like the things that... I, I, it's interesting to look at the way the life evolves from a movie from 10, 20 years ago into the conversations that you're having now. Mm. It's fun to pick apart, but it was, it was so fun. It, there was a real camaraderie in the room, and it was at Prince Charles, which always is the right kind of setting for that as well. We have to either be having a lot of fun with it, have some really interesting things to say about the female experience. And um, yeah, but I mean, like I said, we put on so many different things. I mean, one of the events that I loved doing was the masculinity in the movie. So we put on a double bill of Magic Mike. So the first Magic Mike and the second Magic Mike. Right. And then we had a, uh, Nia did a Q&A in between with Tim Roby and some, and some other journalists. But it was, that was incredible. It was 300 seats sold out screaming girls <laughs> and then ha- kind of having this sort of de- political debate in the middle which <laughs> maybe it wasn't necessary but it was just a lot of fun but sometimes it's that context that can help you look at stuff differently like it can be something that's ostensibly like male directed or i don't know and you could put it on and talk about it in a way that doesn't often get framed that way and exactly. it makes it much more like interesting and exactly yeah. and i love playing with context and i love picking apart the rules of the Bechtel mm. test because obviously those two films don't pass the Bechtel <laughs> test and we got challenged for that a lot but essentially what we were looking at is how the Bechtel test is this really silly metric on an individual scale but it says so much when you're looking en masse at what and who is represented and so this was our particular strand of masculinity in the movie so we were looking at the representations of masculinity and at that time, yes, it was fun to watch Mackie Mike, but also there was some really interesting things to say and the differences between Soderbergh and the the, 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 the later one. And um, it was, you know, looking at the context of women's cinema. This was for our pleasure. Mm-hmm. I think we don't allow ourselves as females, especially because things like porn is so directed at men. It was a real space that we created for all those women to just enjoy and relish these <laughs> bodies. <laughs> And these stories mm. that were, on the face of it, very, very uh, titillating. But also there's all these like issues that were going on between these very masculine characters and what the co- construct of masculinity was and is within those films. And also how those characters in the later one were appreciating women. I think that was a really interesting to serve just to women as well. So, yeah. And moving forward, what do you see the Bechdel test fast kind of evolving into like what are your hopes for it um it's tricky to say because i've kind of in the five and a bit years now i've kind of had these big ideas and then i have had to sit down and be like what is actually realistic because unfortunately this isn't something that's going to pay my bills Mm. as much as i love doing it i would have to really um i'd have to leave my job in order to do this, and my job does pay my bills. <laughs> I've had different relationships with it over the years, thinking, especially after the first year, because it was only supposed to be a one-year project, and then I called the second year a victory lap. Mm-hmm. And then it just 
essentially it just felt like it was still needed because of all the events pretty much selling out all the time it was obvious that there was a need and a desire for this cinema for these spaces and it's been so great to see so many more collectives come around now and I'd like to think that we made it look easy and that there's more more and more female collective now doing it and more independent programmers doing their thing and it's just makes it great makes the landscape better the reason why I like this the fact that there's so many more collectives out there now is just I kind of feel like we don't have to work as hard we, we want to still do the work because we're still having fun with it and um, yeah essentially we're a bunch of women that just love cinema as well so there is a part of us just scratching that itch but mm. where it will be I don't know I, I, do you know what I don't know because in honesty in the first year as, as, as great as it was I burnt out mm. by the end of it I was not in the best place and I was like all this exposure felt quite daunting to me as somebody that's actually a bit of an introvert and I remember after the first couple of events and then having like TV appearances and like interviews with papers and stuff and I remember this really distinct feeling of wanting to just be under a cold rock and nobody asked me anything (laughs) and I don't want to be there again Mm. and so with that I've got to have to manage my expectations of what this is and right now I'm very very happy with what it is we do what we can when we can and when we do it we do it right did you feel like there was a lot of pressure like with the exposure you you won awards I think was it the women in Hollywood kind of um game changer award yeah Um, yeah yeah it kind of happened very quickly and did you suddenly feel like oh shit like I really have to like double down it was it was daunting in that you suddenly became not the but a spokesperson for women in film And one thing that I know is that uh, I like the liberty of changing my mind on things. And I think the evolution of your of of your age, and the and your and your world view will change. And I I started realizing that as I said things in interviews, and then I look back at stuff now, I'm like that was dumb. And now you know I've made mistakes. I've said things that I shouldn't have said, or I've I've done things that I'm like, wait, I wasn't ready to do that, or I, I wasn't prepared. I didn't know how to do or handle that situation. But um, yeah, I, I felt I felt exposed. My opinions and my weaknesses were sometimes exposed, and that made me feel unconfident and doubtful of myself. And you know, it's a real kind of mental effort to continue being. I don't know. Somebody asked like, "What do you think about women film?" Mm. And suddenly, just being like, "I actually don't know." And also, like, <laughs> that's not a question because it's like such a broad topic. It's like, give me something actually specific I can talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was. There was, you know, there was when it comes to Oscars and things like that, and I'm a much, I'm much more comfortable now because I've got. I think what it was is that I wasn't experienced in film at all. I'd gone basically from ger- journalism and marketing to doing film exhibition mm. and creating this feminist radical, which didn't, you know, the whole idea of being an activist didn't really feel right because I was like. I'm an activist, but how is this activism when it's just doing what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the term activist was so loaded. And then you started talking about what the Bechtel test was or what feminism was to you and people would be suddenly start putting you in boxes and or people would start atting you on social media as if to say, what do you think about this? You, Oh, my God, this film doesn't pass the Bechtel test. You must be outraged, Karina. I was like, oh, I don't care. Like, like, so being dragged into conversations mm. that I didn't feel... I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a thinker. I like to think about what I say before I say it. And I think the speed of which to come up with an opinion daunted me. Quite yeah, a lot. the hot take culture. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 
which is still raging and I mean it's in some ways it's good and then in some it's like I don't feel like that's the best forum with which to discuss film yeah well Um, some people are great at it some people mm. are so good at just being like right that's my opinion but my opinions take a bit more time to form and I like to do my research like where has this decision come from why do I like this and that doesn't always lend itself to a quick hot take on Twitter so you mentioned there like other collectives sprouting up and is there any advice that you have if there are other young women out there looking to kind of start their own film club from your own learnings of doing this yeah absolutely um I know it sounds naff but like it, it really is easier than you think a lot of it does come down to having a solid idea however so with the Bechtel Test Fest, it was quite simple. It was like, we're going to show films that pass the Bechtel Test, which obviously evolved into different things as I talked about masculinity in movies. You know, there's basic stuff like branding. I spent a lot of time on that logo and mm. trying to develop what that looked like. I spent a lot of time on sitting in bed doing the website myself and you know, having a platform that makes you look reputable and makes you look professional, makes you look like you know what you're doing and knowing what you're saying and setting out some principles I think is so important, some key values to what it is that you're doing and when, not if, but when you get them pulled apart a little bit, you've always got those principles to go back to and be like, wait, why am I doing this again? Because as we got bigger we got approached by distributors to support their movie and they just thought oh because it's a female director they'll love putting it on when Mm. you know no we we're a bit more intelligent than that we like looking at the whole dynamics of the representation not just because it's a female director we put on films that are directed by men like bring it on the point is those principles are so key to go back to when you find them being pulled apart for the machine of it Mm. and the distributors who might just basically want to be using you as a marketing tool Sometimes it's great to do that. I love being able to support female-directed films. If I can bring my audience and add to its box office, then that essentially is what I've created it for. But yeah, make sure that you're authentic and do do it for the reason of of love. Like you have to be able to have the energy and and it's a, it's a lot of work, and you have to have the energy to do that, and you have to have a passion for it because if you don't, you're and you've got your box office split of like 27 pounds you're going to be like why am I doing this but you have to do this because you know what that feels like of like I said standing in the back of a sold out crowd knowing that all these people are going to enjoy this film because you've put it on and you're going to relish those comments afterwards of people saying I would have never have seen this if you didn't put it on Mm. my mind is now so much more open to this world of film and that's the stuff that makes you do it what I love about collectors like this is that it it tends to like detach shame from not having seen stuff like it gives you another opportunity with which to just revisit old things without like oh it's bad that you haven't seen this before it's just sort of like well you know maybe there wasn't the right forum for its release or you know it got swept under the carpet and whatnot and it's like but here's another opportunity you're absolutely right I'm not a film person (laughs) from from you know I didn't go to cinemas Mm. when I was a kid we didn't really have the money to be going to the cinema. It was an expensive thing. And I still appreciate that it's an expensive thing now. And so we try when we can to cut a deal but to make it, make it accessible. But um, yeah, oh my God, when I started doing... <laughs> my friends now still can't quite believe I do what I do. Because they're like, you're the person that's never seen Indiana Jones. You're the person that fell asleep in Casino. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And I think Bechtel kind of selfishly also gave me an opportunity to uh, re-watch stuff that um, I should have watched by now. But I like the idea of removing shame as well, because I think that is a really bad way to treat one another in terms of our cinema diets. And um, again, I guess that comes down to replaying the rom-com. There's no shame in liking 
romantic comedies just because it's too I mean what's what's more universal than falling in love and let's pivot back to picture house yeah and talk about your role there when you started it and what you were doing so I it's funny because I saw the advertised role and I just thought I'm not I'm not qualified for that but then they reached out randomly and like hey there's this role we think you'd be good at it why don't you come in for an interview I was like yeah, went for an interview, got the job, and it was, yeah, a complete game-changer because it was my first job in proper film exhibition. Because it's there's film and there's film exhibition and cinemas, which is a whole different industry, well, a sect within the industry, and to be able to go and open cinemas, see what a new cinema does to a community, like, the team are really great, everyone works so hard and does so much, and we're all trying to keep this... Uh, the tough job of working in cinema still a thriving business and you know between I guess between Pitch House and Everyman and, and Curzon we're, we're still at it trying to make sure that there's a really rich diverse opportunity to watch interesting films so yeah to see how important cinemas that aren't multiplexes are was was great. Why did you not think you were qualified for it? Because I've never worked in exhibition I've done mm. Bechtel enough, but I guess imposter syndrome as well. Just like, why would I, you know, it was, it was a communications manager, and I didn't even really know what communications manager pe- did yeah. without realising that actually that is an amalgamation of all my skills that I've done from marketing to journalism, creating content, social media. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Oh, uh, yeah, I do do communications. <laughs> it's just one big umbrella term. Um, because I was working for cinemas and then I moved into distribution as well. Yeah. And that's where it got really interesting, working for the film distribution side and um, just seeing the amount of work that goes into on such little budgets for the support and the promotion of an ind- of independent cinema. What are some of the releases that you worked on? And can you like talk a little bit about a whistle-stop kind of overview of yeah. what you're doing once you bought the film and then how you get it out to audiences? It was a pretty crazy year, that particular year that I joined. So I started, they took me to Sundance and I got to see the the very beginning of what it is that they do, watching all the movies, hanging out at the film festivals, Mm. watching them, trying to cut the deals as soon as they come out and talking to the sales agents and then cutting the deal. Then it was eventually, when I got more experience, it was my job to write the announcement press release and be like, okay, Picture House have acquired this movie and making sure that we get press coverage for that. Um, and then the marketing comes in and how are we going to position it? So the positioning is super important. Who are the audience and why are they going to come and see it? And what budget do we have um, based on how much we bought it for? How much do we spend on the marketing because we still need to make a profit? First day at Pitch House, I went to see The Wife. So The Wife were playing players. So that was my day one at Pitch wow. House. Like, oh, by the way, we're going to... Come to Pitch House Central, watch The Wife, and then we're going to um, have our normal meeting afterwards. And But then comes the brainstorming. So we watch the film together, then we have a brainstorming session in the boardroom, which is like, okay, who's the primary audience? Who's going to come and see this? And then we look at the basics of like the trailer and the poster, which I've found fascinating as a, as a, as a process. And there's lots of different agencies that would use or would put out to tender, you know, depending on who we think would be working best based on our history or who's who we've got budget for. Um, what's exciting then is you get to see the, the posters that come in and then they, we look at the different 
posters and sometimes for the yeah for each film there's like 20 different versions and we're just sitting in the boardroom going not that one not that one no that's a bit dark that one's nice if you bring up the color that one's not good that font's terrible and it's just a big kind of it's like tinder yeah no no, no. ah and and it's really really interesting to see how the life of a film starts to develop based on the presentation that you give it and then the trailer cut is really important and then how you release the trailer who you're uh, who you're going to release it with and to make the most amount of impact and the dating the dating is always a fascinating mm. part of the process and the team there are just incredibly knowledgeable and experienced and just the science of being like the 27th of February or whatever date it is and they've just got so much knowledge as to why that date is important Mm. based on um, other films that are coming out um, based on comp titles based on award season Um, if you release it then where's it going to be in three months for the VOD release where's it going to be for award season does that going to qualify for BAFTA all these things are just have to be taken into account and I I loved watching that process unfold Mm. very fascinating yeah, the team there are just incredibly experienced and it, it was quite a privilege to watch them work in that respect and, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And when you're working so hard and putting all this effort into all these details that go into a release, when a film that doesn't perform at box office as well as you'd hoped, how are you not taking that personally? Kind of what's your process for dealing with that? Some of it you just have to chalk up. Um, but, I mean, you, you kind of have to set your expectations and one of the important things to do is apply comps to your title so okay you're going to release this film with uh i don't know two women and a dog what other films are there with two women and a dog that you can comp it to so that you can manage your expectations that way and then you have to communicate those expectations to the director and the sales agent and say okay here's the films that we think it's most like based on when they were released based on how much money they made and there's your markers of success so even though some of them may not seem like they make a lot of money in the box office terms for the average person that's looking at box office, if that film has done as well as or exceeded the expectation of our comp titles, then actually they're more successful than we that we know they're more mm. successful than the um, average person. But it is it is hard to not take it personally personally because I am somebody that does tend to get quite emotionally involved with my work um, to a fault and so two of the films that I worked on last year which were Animals and Last Tree I just fell in love with the people that made them the passion that I saw within everybody that was involved and I just wanted them to work so so much and it was literally like being pregnant because the, the series I mean I don't know what that's like but <laughs> uh, I imagine because it's a nine month process yeah from the time you actually pretty much you give or take you, you come on board on the project but you come on board of the project way after all these people the producers the filmmakers have been coming up with this film and suddenly they're giving it you they're giving you their baby mm. and they're literally giving you their their seed and saying please plant this somewhere it will grow mm. give it the light and the water it needs and you as soon as you enter that contract you're promising that you're going to find that audience for their film and knowing that these two particular films resonated so much with me in terms of animals being a book that I absolutely loved Emma Jane Unsworth just being an absolute joy and um, Sarah Brocklehurst being just such an amazingly hard-working producer and really she between her and Myth they really showed me what 
the producer does mm. and how important, how crucial they are to the whole the whole movie. And yeah, I remember like I kept feeling butterflies before the release date and just being like, oh my god, I'm nervous as if my kid's going to go to school for the first day. And I remember like not being able to sleep. And yeah, uh, <laughs> I think if I kept doing it for a little bit longer, it would either I'd either have to become immune to it or or, or, or it'd kill me. <laughs> Were those two releases kind of personal highlights for you? Because they did oh, really well. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely personal highlights. And I loved, because I run the social media channels for the movies as well, I loved, particularly with Last Tree, I remember knowing when the evening screenings had finished because mm. Twitter and Instagram would just pop off of people coming out and going, oh my God, I've just seen an amazing film. Oh, I've never seen this in represented in cinema before. I've never seen Nigeria in this way or I've never seen a friendship depicted in this way that resonates with me so much you know people really connecting with it and this comes back down to whatever I do with Bechtel just like I want people to connect with the stories that connect with me and I want people to be aware of how much more there is to be said with so much so much independent cinema and we we put on a screening of Last Tree at Soulfest and No Direct Flight at the BFI and yeah, my personal highlights of just being in the BFI, NFT1, and it basically being an all-black audience. And I was like, you never see this. You never, mm. you never get to see this. And it felt like such a honour to be in this audience with all these people watching this film and hearing the personal reflections and personal connections with it and people getting the in-jokes. And it's like, yeah, this this is good. I, yeah. like, I like how... I like seeing firsthand how a good story connects with audiences. And the same with animals. I mean, it's such a beautiful story about a, two, about a female friendship, and one that I hadn't seen before, but one that wasn't about kids. It was about women my age going through the motions of essentially a breakup and what that actually is like. And as you get older, you do break up with friends. And seeing such a nuanced, not necessarily happy ending of something so stark and real and something that kind of blows apart the prissy romantic ideas of two girls skipping down the park together it's yeah. actually really raw and real and and um definitely things that i recognized in some of my female friendships and you stepped away from that role last year and yeah. i'm wondering why you decided to yeah move away from film exhibition what led to that decision it was a real surprise i didn't really expect it because i was loving my job at pitch house my my good good friend from college randomly sent me this job for arts and culture communications officer for hackney now i was born and bred in hackney and she sent it to me she's like dude <laughs> this job is you have you thought about applying and um i think it was off the bat it was quite at the end of last year and i was feeling tired <laughs> I was feeling very exhausted mm. and I think maybe my own fault of putting myself too emotionally into the film releases and feeling quite worn out and wondering if there was something else I could do and I just kind of applied on a whim and I went for the interview really not expecting to get it kind of just doing it for an experience or be like I've never been in the town hall before I'm like, <laughs> this is my way in yeah. <laughs> just for the afternoon it might give me a free cup of tea <laughs> It was a real shock because they called me the next day and they were like, yeah. That's fast. fast. And I li- yeah, I literally almost fell on the floor. I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? 
yeah, anyway, the rest is history. So I, I, I joined, but it was a real, really tough decision, really tough, because I just thought... I had created so much about my personality and my um, my identity, should I say, around my job at Pitch House and what I was doing. And I was really nervous about leaving and not being accepted into the film community anymore. It's like, oh, you're no longer working in film distribution, so what are you? I mean, yeah. I, completely ridiculous, I know. Um, I don't think it is I think it can sometimes feel like a club and yeah, like as yeah. you, uh, when you step away yeah you kind of feel like am I still going to be invited to stuff <laughs> yeah well this is it and you know I've made so much of my friends and so much of my lifestyle is around going to the cinema and mm. going to film festivals and I liked the clout of having the actual business side of it like oh I am here to watch films because I might be working them and I mm. liked that and if it gave me you know it gave me a sense of responsibility and uh, and especially because I just never thought I would be doing that it was never it was so far beyond anything I ever imagined for myself mm. and it was quite a pinching moment to be like oh you know I'm working on this film this is great there's the poster I've just seen it on the tube wow and I, I loved it but yeah to, to change over I think what it was as well is because this particular job that I'm doing now is um it is very different but there's a lot of the same kind of things that I've done in the past that I've been able to connect to emotionally and it is working for the community that I was brought up in and basically it's talking up all the really cool stuff that's going on in in Hackney mm. um, in terms of culture and art so you know we, we're very lucky to have three permanent cinemas in the borough which um is down from 23 which oh, is God. Kind of, yeah back in the day that's awful yeah i mean this is just, i mean most boroughs probably had like 23 cinemas but now huh. um it, it goes to show how the cinema landscape is changing but even again with pitch house and curzon keep expanding it, it's great anyway the point is i'm still able basically i'm taking my love of cinema and just stretching it out to art as well because i'm working on a lot of art projects i'm working in the museum i'm going to be working on a project with the Rio Cinema because they've got all these archive photos mm-hmm. and we're going to be looking at what we can do there with them. Um, you know, we are a prime spot for film location. We've got a whole film department where we make sure that we're using our borough in, in, a, in a way that filmmakers can access. But essentially, I guess if I think about the stuff that I've been doing over the last five years, it has been wanting people to feel seen, wanting people to connect with one another through art and before it was just film, and mm. now I'm expanding that from film to museums and, and archive, archiving, and uh, I'm working on Hackney Carnival, working on Hackney Pride, um, I'm working on a whole Windrush project, which is I'm already feeling very, very emotionally involved with, because I know that the work that I eventually do could potentially help those that have been affected by the scandal seek compensation which is the very, 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 very least the government can do for making a redemption for themselves. And I wanted to ask about a tweet I saw on your feed recently, and you were saying that your new role has given you, or um, you've been seeing more positive, um, progressive representations of black life in art, um, in a way that cinema you haven't found has catered to. I wondered if you can comment on why you think cinema hasn't, hasn't done that, and why you think other art forms allow for that. Yeah, I think... It, it is very sad, and it was something that. So this particular year, I've seen Queen and Slim, I've seen Just Mercy, I've just come back from Waves, and and maybe maybe I just saw those films all too close together, and it, the themes of black pain 
and the turmoil that the police put them through and the absolute travesty of the racism that is in ingrained into I mean these are all American films but you know it does spread out especially when I'm thinking about the work that I'm doing with Windrush the the legal system is just <laughs> fucked but um what I'm doing with my new job is I've got I'm, I'm running the public consultation for the permanent artwork to be in the town hall square for Hackney and we've been talk we've got three artists shortlisted um Indra Khan Thomas J Price and Veronica Ryan and the three of them have each submitted different proposals of what they would do what they would do if given the chance they would create this permanent expression to Windrush Generation and I had the chance to meet them this week and they're all so excited and they've all got all these wonderful representations and articulations in the way that they would express the Windrush Generation and the importance of migration and they're all so different so there's a boat that might well be in the Town Hall Square um, with all the little depictions of all the things that people from the Windrush brought to this country when they were invited, such as the NHS, such as the building work, all of those things. And then Veronica Ryan's got these big fruits, which were inspired by her time at Ridley Road Market. Um, and Thomas J. Price has got these big 10 foot statues that he would put around the square. And they're all so positive. And I, I just came back thinking, I mean, I get it, it's a different art form. Art sculptures uh, <laughs> differ from film for sure but if you think about film it's such a collaborative process mm. it needs a lot of people to make it it needs a lot of green lighting it needs more yeses from big institutions whereas other art forms it can be very insular it's just one person and their pen one person and their paintbrush mm. one person and their sculptures you know so there's a much i'm obviously experiencing a lot more freedom for artists to express themselves in a positive light because unfortunately in cinema I feel like black and diverse audiences have got to pander to the needs and the wants of the audiences that are used to seeing those communities in pain being troubled because that's what sells tickets or that's what wins Oscars and all these worthy films which is sometimes the the only way to get onto the screen like name me a film where it's just two black girls having a great time it just doesn't there's not enough of it they do exist and this is the sad part of it they do exist but they don't get picked up by distributors they don't get picked up by they're not nominated for oscars or baftas and you know you see this in the rising star categories where that's the only places where the diverse groups are but when it comes to the best pictures or the best directors it's just more of the same same white old guys Mm. they're only pulling out the chair so far Mm. they're not pushing it back into the to the awards table and it's sad but just from yeah just from doing my job right now i've got this opportunity to talk meet explore different ways of expression of the black experience in ways that are so much more relishing interesting positive and just stunning absolutely stunning and beautiful and i think i'll definitely be building more on that exploration this year and i can't wait to just kind of comfort myself knowing that there are things out there that really explore our lives in a in a beautiful way Something I've always admired about you from afar is how hard you appear to work, and it's definitely been affirmed um, throughout the course of this podcast. And I'm wondering how you find time for yourself. You've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, burnout, exhaustion, putting yourself into your work a lot. What are your methods for sort of (laughs) stepping back sometimes? Yeah, and I think this this comes back to the question of you saying, what's next for Bechtel? And 
I've not allowed myself to go too far into these big grand plans because I have had to take a step back and be like, I need to look after myself mm. in a way that I haven't done before and just appreciate that I'm not a machine and energy isn't infinite and I do need to take a step back. And I've had very, very good friends who notice when I'm working too hard. I think women in, in general, especially in London, especially in this climate, especially in film, which all working so hard just try to try and achieve the bare basics and mm. it's um it's tough to watch so many other women like myself do this exactly the same thing we're just on this constant cycle of trying to achieve trying not to uh trying to say no to things that we can say no to but there, there has to be a value system into what you say yes to and this is what i've realized and have to apply going forward and a lot of my other friends have this as well but it is it's a pretty three-step rule of like is this offer that you're getting right now to do because I still get a lot of freelance opportunities is this going to enhance my later career into a position that I want to be in does it pay in money that I can live with also important or am I going to get something spiritually from it and it has to tick one of those boxes it has to because otherwise why and I think when I first started I was just saying yes to anything and everything because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. As the face of the Bechteltis Fest, I better do all the things I can to make sure that it's out there. But, you know, is going on a TV show or a radio show that six people listen to, like, but aren't going to be interested in the message, mm. even if there's a million people watching it, are they going to get the message? Is that important? You know, it, just having a bit more rules on what it is that you say yes to is really important. And yeah, I, yeah, I have a lovely partner, and he's also very good at sitting me down and being like, "How about we just sit down? <laughs> How about we go out for a drink? Mm. How about I take you for a meal?" And that's like also really important, and I'm very grateful for for that. But yeah, we, I come from a hardworking family, and we've had to. Nothing has ever landed on our lap, and my my brother's a successful writer, and he doesn't know how to stop either. My mum is the hardest working person and most intelligent person I've ever met as well. So we're just. think it's an ad lad and speaking of like new opportunities and tv shows you're also on sunday brunch at the moment and thinking back to when you were saying (laughs) (laughs) but thinking back to when you were saying um after your first year at backdown you were feeling exposed and i'm wondering about that journey to now being on tv and having your opinion asked um does that feel like quite a nice moment for you to be like i can do this i'm getting used to it only now i've done it three times Mm -hmm. it's a monthly gig and I must admit, I was so close to saying no to doing it. I have no idea how they found me. It's nothing that I applied for. Right. They just emailed me out of the balloon and was like, hi, we are looking for a film reviewer. Would you like to come in? And the rest is history. And it is it is weird. It's weird being on TV. It's weird getting up at 6.30am and having a cab pick you up <laughs> and have your makeup done. I never forget the first time I did it because I was so anxious so nervous and so in tune with the things I was worrying about and thinking to myself oh my god I'm worried about am I going to look fat does my hair look terrible what am I going to wear and I remember thinking I wonder if men have this and I don't know if they do Mm -hmm. and I just the more I'm doing it the more I'm like I don't think men have this therefore you shouldn't have this and just disengage with that part of your vanity which helps um, I'm not a particularly vain person, but I try to keep up appearances to an extent. And um, I never watch it back because I just don't need to do that to myself. <laughs> but I did it and they had nothing but lovely things to say. And they're very nice at making me feel comfortable. But also what I was worried about is social media. Now, I didn't realise how many people watch this show. Mm. Yeah, social media was weird. 
Mm. And I was absolutely cringing like, oh my God, what are people going to say? Mm. But I had such lovely messages from people that I'd never met. I had so many more people, like, like people inboxing me, like, oh, where would you get your outfit from? And it was so, again, it, it, it felt very exposing, but in a positive way. I was like, oh, that's nice. They actually listened to the things that I was saying. And I remember the second time I went on, I talked about the documentary called The Street, which is the great documentary about Hoxton Street. And I talked about it with a lot of passion because I loved it. It's my hometown. And what I loved is how many people contacted me after that. People found my email address, like the internet in the Wild West, never safe. But people contacted me out of the blue going, that film that you were talking about sounded great, how do I watch it? And it felt like, um, again, just going back to the ethics of exactly why I started the Bechtel test, I want people to find good films. I want people to find good art. I want people to feel seen. And this very working class movie, this movie about working class people on a street that is being generated by so much gentrification and people wanting to find it and I knew that it wouldn't be seen that by that many people not that many people go to a mm. cinema to watch documentaries but that felt good yeah so it's get, I'm getting less nervous and yeah I've messed up but nobody knows because mm. I haven't said this thing that I wanted to say um, but that's okay it worries me that there are so many women out there that might not be doing their thing saying what they want to say because they think that they're going to be taken down and for those women that have been taken down I fully fully understand why they would come off and I, I fully understand the, the anxiety that all these things give us but I also know that we are in a digital revolution and we have the power to use these platforms to our advantage say what we need to say because there are so many platforms out there that neglect us and don't tell our stories or don't want to hear us or don't want to articulate our experiences in the way that we would so just in the last 10 years to be able to you know create your own platform it's been a really revolutionary tool for us, us being any marginalised group. That's something like Galdem, for instance, which has just gone from strength to strength just by creating a platform for young black women and, and non-binary diverse people. Yeah, and I just love the opportunity that something like Twitter gives us. Like We talk about the female releases every Friday, put them up on our Twitter just so that people know that these films are here, guys, mm. and we, we want to create a positive thing as well. We don't shut down movies because it doesn't have a woman in it right just do your thing but we'll talk up the films that do have positive representation and we're going to do our utter best to make sure audiences find them and enjoy them and speaking of talking up women-led releases is there a film that you think is an undervalued gem that more people should be getting out to see it's funny because one of the films was actually last year but it's still out there i think it's probably on vod now but um dirty god was so good and I think I talk about this one because I went to a sea change lab in the Isle of Tiri, which is a very random thing. But if any woman out there is working in film, I can't recommend it enough that you check it out. It's mm. just it's a, it's a film festival, but it's also for women in film to spend a few days really talking about their craft and talking about what it is that the industry does to us, both professionally and mentally. But whilst we were there, Dirty God screened. We watched it in a teepee. And the, um, what's the girl's name? Is it Vicky Knight. Vicky Knight, yes. Yes, I remembered. Uh, Vicky Knight was there and she was so sweet and her performance is so good and it's got such great Andrea Arnold vibes and this real story about this girl who's just got all these dreams in, dis- in spite of this awful thing that has happened to her. And I think just the, the fact that the filmmaker had done so much work into making sure that she found an authentic actor and she's just nailed it, absolutely nailed the casting. Mm. 
and not just because she also happens to have this incident that has happened to her and she was caught in a fire she's also just so cinematic and is so alluring and she's got such presence and I just think it's such a film of um, luck, chance and and skill and patience it's a really, really lovely story and I don't think enough people have seen it so I'd say Dirty God Amazing, Karina, thank you so much I could talk for so much longer to you but that was brilliant Thank you